0: If you'd pass that to the center aisle, Will and or Martin will pick those up and we will uh, pray for you this week coming. Well, I'm sure you'd like to be reminded that Monday was tax day. Yes, indeed. April 18th was tax day for the year 2022. And for some, this day was costly. And for others, there was some level of encouragement because you've got a check coming in in the mail, which kind of reminded me of one of the funniest things I've come across in my reading in recent days. And it was in a meme along the theme of income tax returns uh, from the government. And this mother, apparently speaking to her adult child who had apparently in past years misspent tax refunds uh, offered this observation and counsel. I know you're missing the beach, but you're also missing a tooth and all the tread on your tires. Let's make smarter decisions this year. <laughs> I could just hear you saying that. I read that and not only did I laugh out loud, I thought, amen. That's a good word. It has nothing to do with this message, but it's a good word. <laughs> it does relate in a Far sense to just the inevitability of two certainties in this world, and that is taxes and death. It was Benjamin Franklin who is noted or famous for saying, nothing is certain but death and taxes. In fact, he touted this phrase after signing the Constitution of the United States, Franklin wrote, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. So while tax reckoning comes once a year, we experience death in this world 365 days a year. In fact, I checked with the world population review in the present world death rate is 166,279 deaths every day in this world. 6,928 deaths hourly and 115 deaths per minute. We can all count on having an experience where we lose a loved one, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, Public figure, figures and noted leaders we can count on one day even breathing our last in this world and dying. And so from the materialistic worldview that is prevalent in our culture at this time, that's just it. You live and then you die and that's that's it. I was looking at some atheistic musings uh, this week and one said the scientific Part of me says that when you're dead, you're dead. It's game over. Your parts stop pumping and your bits stop beating and you become worm food. That's it. Others, while holding on to their atheism or agnosticism, said, "I I, I can't imagine not being alive after death because there isn't anything to imagine. I can't fathom cessation of existence. Well, the reason he or she is saying that is because Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that there's more to life than what we see. And the thought was finished, but that doesn't make it any less of a fact. When you die, you're worm food, that's it. The Bible has so much more to say. And what I'm wanting to hold up for us as we look at this section probably one of the more difficult sections in the book of Romans, if not the New Testament. As Paul holds up Adam, and he holds up Jesus Christ, that he does so for us to see where we really stand before God. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we're made alive. Yes, we will die physically, but spiritually to be alive in his presence forevermore. So in this text, would you give your thoughts... And devotion this morning. We will follow the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, argument here as he holds up the differences and the comparisons between Adam, the first man, his story told in the book of Genesis, and Jesus Christ, the second Adam who has come that we might live. So we're looking at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21 are the larger section. Our focus will be on verses uh, 12 through 14 this morning. Let me just pause here for a moment just as the first observation and just take a step back. Sometimes that's important when you're plowing along in a Bible book. Take a step back, uh, get a little assessment of uh, of the landscape and process the way things are. And I think Romans 1 through 5 has done that for us. Processing the world in which we live and how to understand that world. Our journey through Romans has taken us through the bad lands of human depravity. And in clear and unmistakable terms, we've seen that apart from God's overcoming grace, we have no hope in ourselves. Since Adam and through Adam, all have fallen short. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul describes this death spiral that um, is irredeemable, seemingly apart from God's uh, strength. So we have suppressed the revelation of God and embraced idolatry. That's a lost humanity. If you'll flip a couple pages to the left, uh, you'll see Romans 1, through 32, where he just summarizes what it means to be lost, what it means to have an Adam sin nature, It says in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. As I read this caustic list, this toxic list, I want you to think as I I read this, this is not pointing fingers at people, other people. This is doing an assessment of our own heart, our own depravity. This is us. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, hateful, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We live in a world that champions rebellion against God. And that's part of understanding God's grace and mercy to us in the gospel. Without hope, we do what is right in our own eyes. We cannot save ourselves. And apart from God's overcoming grace through Jesus Christ, which he sent into this world, to live a sinless life and to die on a cross as our substitute, we have no hope. We've fallen short of God's glory. And so this message of justification by faith, that by faith in Jesus Christ, God credits us as righteousness is good news to a world that's awash in guilt. And it keeps us from missing really the big story of the Bible. So... The reason I bring this up now is because in a couple of weeks we're gonna we're gonna make a little detour. That is, I mean, doesn't mean that we're just gonna put Romans aside. No, Romans is feeding this detour. It's guiding this detour from Mother's Day to Father's Day. We're gonna look at a number of issues that are facing us living in the 21st century. Uh, the cultural decisions that have ushered us along at such a speed we can't even, what happened is the collective uh, expression for many. What, what's going on? This is insane. And so from Mother's Day to Father's Day, we're going to be looking at marriage. We're going to be looking at roles. We're going to be looking at some of the cultural hot buttons that have surfaced straightforwardly from the text of Scripture in order to answer the question, what are we, how are we to live as, as followers of Jesus Christ in this generation? How do we live in such a way that our speech is seasoned with salt? So more about that in the coming weeks. So this weekend, next anyway, we'll be in Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 21. Notice with me, if you're following in your outline, this is number two, Uh, Paradise Lost, Adam's bitter legacy. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that one man? Adam. The historicity of Adam is significant. There was a real Adam. The Hebrew means the man or a man, but a historical Adam created in the image of God, the first human being created. And then Paul goes on, and death through sin. Sin came into the world through Adam. And because of Adam's sin, God fulfilled his promise. The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Physically and spiritually. When Adam sinned, he catapulted the human race into a a broken relationship with God. Physically would die, spiritually would die. Now I think there's some hope that Adam was saved by God's gracious provision, and that skins were kill, killed in order to provide covering for them in the garden. This would be the first sacrifices, but a spiritual death and a physical death. Paul says, therefore, so that you know. Here we come to that conjunction again in Romans, and it's building a logical thought. This section, Romans 5.12, really divides itself naturally into three paragraphs, and each of these, Adam and Christ, are related to each other and compared to one another and contrasted to one another. John Stott was an invaluable help to me, um, that noted British commentator in this section, Um, So as we look at this section, verses 12 through 14, just to get an overview, Adam and Christ are introduced. Adam is responsible for sin and death as a pattern for the one to come, verse 14. So as in Adam, we all die, but in Christ, those who are in Christ are made alive. The second paragraph, verses 15 through 17, Adam and Christ are contrasted. With Adam, death reigned. With Christ, our sin has been paid for. And then the final section, verses 18 through 21, Adam and Christ are compared. So, through one man's sin, Adam's disobedience, and through Christ's obedience, many have been rescued from curse the curse of sin, to blessing. Now, through one man, sin entered the world. I want you to see this in black and white. So go with me to the first book of the Bible. First book of the Bible. I want us to see this in context here. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man. Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God created Adam, and the first thing he did was give Adam a job. I want you to keep my creation. I want you to exercise dominion over my creation. I want you to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. All of this is yours, Adam. Think of this. All of it is yours, To take, to eat, to enjoy. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And following the rest of chapter 2, God saw that it wasn't good that man was alone, so he created Eve, brought them together in the first wedding ceremony in the Bible. And then we come to chapter three. The serpent, more crafty than any beast of the field, came and offered this temptation towards Eve. And she listened. She added to God's word. The serpent contradicted God's word. I think this was the first time in creation where God's word had been contradicted. We hear it contradicted all the time, don't we? Just watch TV for five minutes. Listen to a program for five minutes. Anyway, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. And so there the bait is cast, the temptation is given, and they buckle like a cheap tent. And we're maybe tempted to think, I wouldn't have done that. Adam is representing all of us. In one form or another, he's our federal head. And so Adam and Eve fell. And the consequences were great. And what's interesting is that God didn't strike them dead that moment. What did he mean in chapter 217? When he said, The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. They didn't die. What's that? That's grace. That's God's gracious provision. And he made provisions for them. And Adam would live many, many years after that. And so here we have the backdrop for Romans 5. And so when we look at sin coming out of Adam and Eve, we've noted many times that their first son Cain killed their second son Abel. And so sin is the great destroyer, it's the great life destroyer. If you could understand biblically that God says to us all that it is our sin that is our greatest enemy. Sin is the great life destroyer separating us from God, troubling every human relationship. It's behind every broken marriage, every abusive home, every shattered friendship, every evil thought, every evil word. Every evil deed, every good deed undone, every good word unsaid, we are sinners by nature and by choice. And Adam led the way as our federal head. So, Paul's point in this passage is that we inherit Adam's guilt, for Adam sinned for us all, and we inherit his nature. Now, look with me, uh, thirdly, our relationship to Adam. Just expanding upon this a little bit, Um, he says in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's all of us. Uh, Paul stops there and he doesn't pick up to complete the thought until chapter 18. Instead, he anticipates a question. What about those from the time of Adam to Moses before there was a law? He says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. What about those people? Since, verse 14 says, death still reigned, people still died between Adam and Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What he means by that is God said to Adam, Don't eat from that tree. That's a command, wouldn't you say? I would say that's pretty clear. And Adam and Eve disobeyed that command, transgressed God's spoken word to them, and fell into sin. And so Adam became a type of one to come, and that's the good news in Jesus Christ. But Paul's presenting humanity, once again, in two distinct categories. Two ways. The Bible presents two ways, and only two. Have you heard me say that in the last year? Affirm me here. Yes, the Bible says, whether you go to the book of Joshua, who said, that's for me and my house, we're going to, you do what you're going to do, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Psalm 1, the blessed man, the wicked. Jesus said, The the wise man builds on on my words and my teachings. The foolish man builds on the same. On and on and on it goes. There's a way that seems right to a man. That's one way. But the end there is destruction, it doesn't lead to the path of life. So Paul has given to us a blow by blow of the universal extent of human sin and guilt and. He also proclaimed the good news of the grace of our rescue. He has said to us that both Jew and Gentile are guilty. And so as he talks about this dilemma, this um, um, those living between Adam and Christ, we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to give a good answer to that for you. But here as he's unpacking this blessing of being saved and forgiven through um, the the finished work of Jesus Christ. He affirms that sin entered the world through one man, through his disobedience. Eve was also implicated, although Paul leaves her out. He'll bring her up in other letters, but here she's not there. Adam is the leader here and is held responsible. Because of that, death came into the world. So when you see a a hearse uh, going down Burnside Avenue... Oh, someone died. Like the others, you know, 115,000 in a given day around the world. Someone died. I wonder what the cause of that. Well, I heard he had cancer. Well, that certainly may have been the cause of the of his physical ailments. But ultimately, sin death death is here because because of sin. And many people just can't bear to hear that. And I'm not saying the guy in the the hearse has a one-to-one correspondence with some act of wickedness. I'm talking about sin's tentacles into everything we know in this world. Sin entered the world through one man. Death entered the world through sin. Adam was the door. And so I just want to make a plug here on the historical uh, importance of Adam. Adam is not a mythical person. Philip Ryken said, we cannot understand the world or our faith without a real historical Adam. When Paul brings up Adam in Romans 5, he's not talking about some fictitious character. He's talking about the first human being that was ever created. And because death has come to all men, it is because we all have sinned. And so here is the big question, in what sense have all sinned so that all die? Well, we, all, we have all sinned by copying. There are two views here. One, the first is we have all sinned by copying and repeating Adam's sin. We imitate Adam according to this view. And this was the position of Pelagius, a 5th century British monk. Pelagius denied original sin and taught salvation by self, kind of a self-salvation Uh, He viewed Adam as the first sinner and all the rest of us follow his bad example, but it was possible to live a sinless life and to make your way to God. That's hard to defend. But this first view has in mind, we just imitate what Adam did. Well, in a sense, we, we do. We have a sin nature, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. All sinned when Adam sinned and were included in his sinning. So are you getting that? When Adam sinned, we're all held guilty in that sin. That doesn't seem fair. Well, what destroys that objection is that's exactly how God deals with us in Jesus Christ. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we're all made alive because of what he's done. So, yes, we've inherited Adam's nature, we have followed Adam's example, we have repeated Adam's life in one form or another, but as we look at verse 12, because all sinned, Paul meant all sinned in and through Adam and therefore all died. And there are three issues here, and going back to the time between Adam and Moses, before the Mosaic law was given, sin was in the world. Verse 13, sin came before the law. No dispute there. Adam came before Moses. There's not a dispute there. But sin is not taken into account when there's no law, verse 13 says, meaning God's law is established. And what does the law declare to us? Does it clean us? No, it doesn't. It declares, it's like a mirror. It declares our, our, our sin So until the time of the Mosaic law was given and established God's righteous standard, sin was not reckoned against sinners. And so that brings up a tremendous pushback from Westerners like us because we're fierce individualists in our outlook. Paul is speaking of us all having been held guilty in Adam, even those who live between Adam and the law of Moses. But... Let me fill in the blank there a little bit for you. I hope this will be helpful. Paul's point here is that death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. People still died even though there wasn't the law. What is that about? Well, even throughout that period before the law was given, even over those who did not sin by breaking a specific command, there was still death. How do we understand that? And I think that goes back to Adam. That God Counted the entire human race as guilty in light of Adam's sin as our federal head. We know from reading our Bibles that there were recorded uh, direct and defiant acts between Adam and Moses. Let me give you a few. How about in Genesis 6, where things got so ugly on the earth, God said, I'm sorry I ever made man. And he flooded the entire earth. And the only one saved were Noah and his wife, his three son, their three sons and their wives to repopulate the earth. We know that in reading our Bibles that God has given us a moral law. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 2, if you'll turn the page there in Romans 2.14, for when Gentiles, talking about those without the law, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. What does that mean? Well, this is describing God's moral law that he has written on our hearts, the conscience we have by being created in the image of God. And consequently, God's punishment came and we, we see it in the flood. We, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Or even before that, the Tower of Babel? where God confused the the languages and separated the tongues as a judgment against man's pride and trying to build a building to reach to heaven. Sodom and Gomorrah. We could also include pagans without any inkling of revelation apart from natural revelation, yet all died physically. And death is the penalty for sin. John Stott says there can can be only one explanation for this. All died because all sinned in and through Adam. That's what Paul's saying, I believe. The representative or federal head of the human race. So five times... Back in chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, once in every verse, Paul states that the trespass or disobedience of one man brought death, judgment, and condemnation to all of us. Now, let me close with this. Fourthly, I think the theme of Romans 5 through 8 is, is the believer's hope. The believer's hope how do, we, how do we live in light of the gospel? We're to, we're, we're to be a hope-filled people. And so hope is trumpeted because Christ has overturned sin's curse. This Adam was a type of the one to come, verse 14 says. Do you see that in the last section of verse 14? He was a type of the one to come. I think New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner was right in seeing that hope is the the permeating theme here. And we've looked at that uh, earlier in chapter five. We have peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ. We have hope that is a living hope because he's risen from the dead. And we are inundated with God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified before God and God's righteousness has been extended to us, and we we sing regularly this, these truths of who we are in Adam and who we are in Christ. Joy to the world at Christmas time! I'm reminded of the stanza that says, let, "Let no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found." And in Wesley's famous hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, he, Christ, left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. (laughs) Tis mercy all immense and free for, oh my God, it found out me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Beginning of verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he picks up the same thought in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just read it, but make note of it if you want to research it. Verses 20 through 26. For by one man came death. Who was that one man? Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Who's that? Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What does that mean, pastor? That means when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God to you are yes. That means John 11.25 is true for you in Christ, which says he's the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him shall live even though he dies. To be in Christ... Christ, the first fruits sometimes you come to a passage of scripture that really challenges your thinking this one does for me and I pray in the coming weeks that God would give more understanding to what's going on here that we would better understand our Bibles we would better understand our relationship with God and we would be better witnesses as we live in a culture that does what's right in its own eyes so let me just ask you are you an Adam? in a sense we all are we came from him are we an Adam? Are you an Adam? Is that all you're in? Or are you in Jesus Christ, knowing his redemption, his forgiveness, his hope, his love, his salvation? I was reminded of this stark contrast by an article I read in Moody Monthly magazine years ago. And it was about two men. One was D.L. Moody and the other was Robert Ingersoll. Both of them died in 1899, and the article spent um, the way to the the article, just compared and contrasted the two men's lives. D.L. Moody was one of the most gifted evangelists in the 19th century. He had a sixth grade education, he spoke in broken English, but when he preached, the power of God fell. Thousands and thousands and thousands came to saving faith through D.L. Moody. And not only here in America, but he traveled to Great Britain. And his preaching was received as thousands came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was a man of faith. And one one day he was in Chicago... And he envisioned that God wanted a, a ministry training school in Chicago. And he stood on the corner of Chicago Avenue and LaSalle Street in Chicago. And he cried out to God God, if you would have this institution of higher learning here, give me what is needed and I'll build it. He didn't have a nickel. And if you go to Chicago today, on the corner of Chicago Avenue and LaSalle Street, you'll see a Bible Institute called the Moody Bible Institute. And for 150 years plus, they've been training pastors and missionaries and musicians to trumpet the hope of the gospel around the world. His funeral was attended by thousands in 1899. There was singing of the hope for the believer in a dying world. It was recounted at Moody's funeral, his last words from his deathbed is this dying why this is bliss there is no valley I have been within the gates earth is receding heaven is opening God is calling I must go and he went where not as worm food oh yeah his body may decay but one day he's got a resurrection hope His spirit went to be with the Lord on the promises of Jesus Christ. The other man didn't get as much ink. Oh, he thought he was so clever in his day. Robert Ingersoll was a professed agnostic and skeptic who gave his life touring the country to discredit Christianity. He gave dramatic lectures throughout the country questioning the Bible's truthfulness, and the existence of God. When he died, the commentary simple. A few people assembled to remember his life, and there was a, a request for those who attended. There will be no singing. In Adam, we all die, physically and spiritually. The Bible holds up for us the teachings of Jesus Christ. You must be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, which is a work of the Spirit leading you to repentance where you trust in him. By the work of what he's accomplished on our behalf, we will be with him forever. Winston Churchill once said of the sacrifice of those who gave the ultimate during World War II. This elder statesman said, so many owe so much to so few. But for believers in Jesus Christ, isn't this the truth? So many owe so much to only one person. (laughs) Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. So once again, As we come to the end of this worship service, we're called to express deep gratitude to God for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves through Jesus, absolute surrender to him. We preach to that end that the word of God calls us to obedience, to surrender to him, to repent, to place my faith and trust in Christ alone. What's keeping you from the Savior today? What's keeping you from releasing uh, your heart to him in complete obedience? You think you can manage the affairs of your life better than he can? That's how a fool thinks. The simple pleading of the gospel is not a Savior bludgeoning you to, to personal faith. It's one, a Savior wooing you, saying to you, come to me, come to me now. Could you not respond to such a a call to faith to the one who commands the stars to go in their place? Could you not surrender to him today in repentance? Embracing what he's done for you and then for every believer to make a steadfast commitment to Christ to live faithfully for him putting off our sin and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ that others may see Christ in us which is the ultimate compliment to live for him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray for the challenges that have been sent from your word this morning that they would find a resting place in our heart, that the sowing of your word this morning would be watered by the Spirit and would bear fruit. For the unbeliever, I pray, Lord, that you would place this seed in their heart, in their mind, to bring about what only you can do. And that they would know that we are a church that once to help them and love them, and for them to be a part of this body of people, men and women, who you have saved by your grace and for your glory. I pray, Lord, for the believers that are gathered in this room, this professing church, that you would help us to live for Christ, knowing that to die is gain. I pray that you would increase our intensity, Lord, to seek the kingdom, to live for you, to give of ourselves for your glory. Lead us now in these closing moments as we sing to you to surrender our heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen.